Hello, I'm Howard Miller, the contributing editor and podcast host for the Daily Journal, and we welcome you to this podcast with Emily Martin of the National Women's Law Center, where we will be talking about legal and other issues involving sexual harassment on campus. I first want to say that if you'd like MCLE credit for this hour, it is very easy to obtain. If you go to dailyjournal.com, dailyjournal.com, and you see this podcast, then you'll see a link to MCLA tests that can be taken, uh, filled out, sent into the Daily Journal, and you may obtain MCLA credit for this by doing those tests uh, electronically. Today, we're talking about a subject that is as controversial, I think, as uh, any in the law, the issues of sexual harassment on campus, and especially the issues that have been raised by the most recent Department of Education uh, regulations that have been admitted, that have been issued. Uh, we could not have a better person involved in this to talk about this on this program, and this is one of two programs on this. But today we have Emily Martin, who is a Vice President for Educational and Workplace Justice at the National Women's Law Center. Emily, before I go on, tell us a little about the National Women's Law Center and what it does and what you do. So the National Women's Law Center is a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C. that's been around since 1972. And we uh, use the law in a lot of different ways to advocate for the rights of women and girls um, in education, in the workplace, in healthcare, including reproductive rights. We work on issues related to women and families' income security and access to child care. And we do our work through uh, engagement around policy at the federal and state level, as well as litigation and public education and uh, communication campaigns. Thank you. Well, Emily, prior to joining the National Women's Law Center, Emily uh, was deputy director of the Women's Rights Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, she had a litigation policy and educational initiative to advance the rights of women and girls. A graduate of the Yale Law School, she served as law clerk for Senior Judge Wilfred Feinberg on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and Judge T.S. Ellis III in the Eastern District of Virginia. Emily, let's talk about the subject. How did this, what is important, what is the headline here in terms of protecting against sexual harassment on campus? Well, unfortunately, the headline is that uh, Betsy DeVos and this Department of Education are doing everything they can to weaken Title IX's protections against sexual harassment, including sexual assault. Title IX, of course, is the law that prohibits federally funded education programs and institutions from discriminating on the basis of sex. And um, for, for decades, it has been clear that sex discrimination includes sex-based harassment, sexual harassment, sexual assault. And the Supreme Court has held, the Department of Education has consistently recognized through Republican and Democratic administrations that that means that schools have an obligation to address and remedy harassment and assault. Um, but through a set of new rules that were issued Earlier this month, the Department of Education has really 
reset a lot of what schools are expected and even allowed to do in um, responding to sexual harassment and sexual assault, and that's both at the K through 12 and at the higher ed level. Um, we'll obviously talk more, but the National Women's Law Center's concern is that the the sum total of these rules are um, really going to send a message to individuals, to students who experience sexual harassment, that uh, there's no point in coming forward because of the real obstacles that they will face in having any sort of meaningful response from their school. Let me ask you, take take me, let's go a little further back uh, before we talk about what we can call the divorce regulations. What is the scope of the problem here in terms of sexual harassment on, on, on campus? Well, it's unfortunately extremely common, um, both through K-12 education and higher education. Uh, survey data suggests that as many as one in five uh, women in college experience sexual assault at some point during their college career. Um, if you broaden the question to include forms of harassment, uh, as many as half of students experience sexual harassment. We also know that this is a tremendously underreported issue. It is only a small minority of individuals who are sexually assaulted or sexually harassed who make any sort of formal complaint, either to their school or in the case of a sexual assault, to the police. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, individuals often feel ashamed, they feel like there's something that they did to cause it, or they feel like nothing good will come of a complaint, that uh, it won't be taken seriously, that there won't be a meaningful response, that making a complaint will only make things worse. And that makes it very difficult for institutions to uh, create safe places for students to learn. And so one of the real goals of a lot of schools, again, both at the K-12 level and in colleges uh, in recent years, have been to really shift the landscape so that um, so the victims of harassment and assault feel able to come forward and feel like if they do come forward that there's going to be a meaningful response, that they're going to be protected, that it's not going to be the beginning of a cycle of uh, retaliation and um, and hostility that is is in some ways worse than the initial harassment itself. Well, let's go back a ways. How was this handled? We're going to talk about a guidance letter uh, during the Obama administration. But let's go back ten years. Uh, how was this ordinarily handled uh, on campus and in K twelve? when a, a complaint was made about sexual harassment? What procedures were followed that caused the unease uh, in the way this was being handled? Do you mean before the Obama administration yes. guidance? Yes, before the amount. So, yeah, so one of the problems that um, was too common before this guidance that the Obama administration issued in 2011 and then in 2014 was schools really having 
no process. There being no clear place to go for help if you experience sexual harassment, including sexual assault. Um, no clear door to go through to say, this happened to me, can you help me? Schools who did receive complaints about sexual assault of a student by another student sometimes just said, well, that's a criminal matter. We'll refer that to the police department, and that's the end of our obligation, at least unless or until there's a criminal conviction and maybe come back to us then. And so the lack of clarity around where do you go, what do you do, and what are schools' um, obligations to provide um, to provide supportive measures when you when a student comes forward saying I've experienced harassment, the lack of clarity about schools' obligation to take action, whether or not um, a police department takes action, led to too many students um, receiving no meaningful response from their school, or even worse, uh, experiencing retaliation when they came forward with complaints about harassment. So an example of what retaliation might look like is you come forward and say, I, I was raped at this, at this party, and the question comes back, were you drinking in violation of school rules at that party? We're going to have to open a disciplinary proceeding to look into that. So that both the absence of a clear set of procedures for individuals who experience harassment to seek help, a clear understanding by schools and universities of what their obligations were led to this problem being ignored and to students having no place to go when they experienced harassment. So the central problem was and is that there was a large amount of sexual harassment, serious rape and other elements of sexual harassment. But because of the procedures that were involved, even though the university clearly has an interest in the kind of community it has and in protecting its students, because of the procedures that were involved, those who'd been sexually harassed were reluctant to come forward. And when they did, they had great difficulties. And so a culture that I don't want to say promoted, but a culture that, that let sexual harassment go in this way essentially prevented victims from having any meaningful procedure for relief. Is that a fair statement of what the problem was that all this is trying to deal with? Yeah, that's a fair statement. It was a problem of schools not seeing this as fundamentally the school's problem to solve, of seeing these issues as issues that did not go fundamentally to the school's role in creating a, a safe educational environment where people are able to learn. And then that leads us then to the Obama guidance letters of 2011 and 2014, because these were letters from the Department of Education, is, is that right, to university okay. campuses written as letters. And what did the guidance letters that were written to universities say? the Obama administration guidance letters. So what the guidance letters, which um, which were also not aimed just at, at colleges and universities, but at uh, primary and secondary schools as well, made clear were that um, schools 
were responsible for taking immediate, appropriate action to investigate when they knew about uh, possible sexual violence or other harassment, or reasonably should have known that they would be expected to take the reasonable steps that would allow them to be aware of this issue, that you couldn't just put your head in the sand and say, we never heard about it, we have no obligation to do anything. That when sexual violence and other forms of sexual harassment occurred, that a school had to take prompt steps, effective steps to end that, that violence, to prevent it from happening again, and to address its effects, to take um, steps to ensure that, that the victim was not placed in a worse position because of the harassment, which could mean, for example, giving someone more time to complete uh, course requirements because they weren't able to do things on time because of the trauma they experienced, or it could mean uh, ensuring that they had a different schedule or that their housing was moved, again, to give them some level of protection. The guidance made clear that, that a school had to have a grievance procedure for students to bring complaints of sex discrimination, including sexual harassment and sexual violence complaints that were fair procedures that provided an equal opportunity for both the, the complainant and the named harasser to present evidence that both the complainant and the named harasser both had to have equal appeal rights, that there had to be fair and equitable procedures in place. And that those grievance procedures, when a school determined whether or not harassment occurred, that the school had to use the preponderance of the evidence standard, determine based on whether it was more likely than not that the harassment happened, rather than imposing some heightened standard like the clear and convincing evidence standard, which is a step further, a more demanding burden of proof. And the uh, guidance made clear that a school had to notify both parties of the outcome of the complaint because another problem was that people would say, this happened to me, and the school said, oh, interesting, I'll investigate, and nobody knew what happened after that. There were no clear report back provisions. So, of course, there was a lot more detail in the guidance to try to give schools a real roadmap on how to create these processes in a way that was fair to both parties, but that was really oriented to ensuring that there were safe ways for students to receive help and fair ways to determine whether or not harassment occurred and what the school's response should be, including whether there should be some sort of discipline. If it was a student who is an assailant or harasser in terms of suspension or expulsion, if it were a staff or faculty member who was a, a assailant or harasser in terms of termination. And this guidance was really important in shifting the way that schools, especially institutions of higher education, oriented themselves to the issue by making clear that the Department of Education really was expecting schools to put these procedures into place and to communicate to students how to use them. I should also add this didn't happen in a vacuum, that 
simultaneously. Relatedly, there was a lot of student activism on college campuses demanding colleges to be more responsive to issues of sexual assault and that that helps spur the Department of Education's attention to this issue and the attention that a lot of colleges and universities have paid to this issue over the past nine years or so. Let me ask you about the the guidance letter, because one of the potential consequences of failing to comply with the guidance letter uh, could have been the loss of uh, federal funding uh, in many areas. And I want to ask you so that we can talk about it. One of the criticisms of the guidance letter is that it was, as I understand it, the criticism is it was not, it's claimed it was not done un, under any established procedure under the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, with no, that it was simply written as a letter called a guidance letter, but nevertheless, because of the risk of losing federal funding, uh, had enormous impact. Do you think the procedural objection in terms of it simply being uh, this letter without the APA procedures having been followed, do you think that's a legitimate criticism of it, or is is it something else? Well, it is sub-regulatory guidance. It didn't go through APA notice and comment. But I don't think it is a fair criticism to suggest that somehow, therefore, the interpretation it put forward is an illegitimate standard to hold schools to. What the Dear Colleague letter and the 2014 guidance, the Q&A, did was really give some more clarity about how the Department of Education was considering these issues, what questions it was looking at when it was weighing complaints filed with the Office of Civil Rights, the standards that it was applying in its investigations. But it is interpretive, the long-standing rules that uh, Title IX prohibits sexual harassment. So it's not as though it's made up out of whole cloth somewhere. I think it's also important when you're talking about the potential loss of federal funding. That is true. That is the ultimate hammer under Title IX. That is the ultimate enforcement mechanism for the Department of Education. It is exceedingly rarely used. So it is true that that is a good incentive for schools to engage with the Department of Education in investigations. It's an important reason why the Department of Education's uh, interpretations of Title IX are of real interest to institutions, but it isn't as though the Department of Education is defunding colleges willy-nilly because they didn't like their grievance procedure. But another um, another way, but another way to see this is, I take it, what you and, and and the defenders of the letter say is that can really be viewed as an appropriate measure of transparency. Uh, that that given the language of the statute and existing regulations, that what was happening is that since it, everyone calls for transparency in any uh, potential process and that what the Department of Education was doing in writing the letter was being transparent so that in case formal proceedings were started, no one could with surprise say, wait a minute, we didn't get warning, we didn't know we had to do this, and so it can be viewed simply as the kind of transparency that people call for more from government, and and that was its function. Absolutely. It 
provided clarity as to how the Department of Education was applying Title IX protection. It applied, it provided details for institutions about the Department of Education's understanding of what Title IX required in this context. And that is an important thing for all parties, for, for institutions, for complainants, for the department to have a set of common understandings about how these things will work. Yeah. Now, there was widespread af- after 2014, especially not only criticism, but, but uh, significant litigation involving uh, universities and, and others that followed the guidance letter. And some of those, those cases talked about the failings of procedures in terms of, of protection for those who were, uh, uh, who were accused. Uh, what do you think about the reaction, the litigation reaction, which resulted in some cases saying that, that the accused person really needed greater protection than was given uh, the way the universities and others were, were administering following the guidance letter? Well, there certainly has been um, in recent years a lot of activism by uh, accused students and and those who are speaking out on behalf of the accused students who assert um, that that schools' response to sexual violence and sexual harassment uh, has fallen short of uh, procedural protections uh, that a named harasser should be entitled to. And certainly that set of arguments and concerns is a big part of what the Department of Education, the Betsy DeVos Department of Education, has pointed to as justification for revising the Title IX rules, asserting, look, there's been this litigation, sometimes successful, uh, by students who were accused of harassment, asserting that their rights were violated, this is clearly evidence that um, that we've gone overboard and that a correction is necessary. I I think it is evidence of the fact that the way that schools shifts in responding to harassment and assault definitely led to more complainants coming forward, feeling comfortable about coming forward. It led to more accountability for harassment, um, and that instituted some backlash. But some observers seem to say the fact that uh, that named harassers has, have brought litigation, the fact that there has been that there has been a backlash somehow demonstrates that the rules, that the previous guidance was uh, per se illegitimate, which I think is just a real misreading of what happens when you shift power relationships. You know, sexual harassment and sexual assault is almost always at base a question of power. And what the guidance in 2011 and 2014 and schools revisioning of uh, grievance procedures for sexual harassment and sexual assault attempted to do was really try to give some power back to those 
who had experienced harassment and assault to um, to take those claims seriously and to ensure that there was some meaningful institutional response to those harms. And that sort of action, there will always be a backlash in the face of meaningful change of that sort. So what I think is really misguided is the notion that the fact of that backlash somehow suggests that the that the reforms that came before um, weren't solving for an important problem. It's a thing that we should always expect when we are achieving meaningful change in how society responds to sexual harassment and sexual violence. I know there are clearly deep cultural uh, cultural reactions here. Some of the reactions, uh, though they may often stem from, from the cultural issues, but really focus on issues that as lawyers we're very concerned about. For example, one of the issues I know that was raised is that the procedures that were used by universities involved the person who was doing the investigating, uh, deciding on what the final result and, 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 and sanctions would be, that there was no separation in many cases, and this was raised in some of the litigation, between the person responsible for the investigating the complaint uh, who also was the same person who decided what the uh, what the sanction or final result was w- was that true and and if so do you think that was a, an appropriate issue to raise i think that some schools used um that model some schools uh the same office employed both both the investigator and the fact finder though it wasn't the same individual i think there were a variety of approaches which frankly, is appropriate given the huge variety of educational institutions that Title IX applies to, from uh, wealthy universities with huge endowments to very small community colleges to, uh, to small elementary schools or charter schools. But there are a lot of different contexts where these um, investigations and determinations are taking place. And I think one thing that's distorted this conversation is the fact that sexual harassment can include or, or can be sexual assault or rape has led a lot of observers to want to graft something that looks like a criminal legal process into the way schools are responding to these issues through their own disciplinary proceedings because we might be talking about behavior that is also a crime it leads people to say well that must mean that for a school to discipline a student or a staff member for that behavior that a school should do something that looks like a criminal trial where they're is a judge who is separate from the investigating sort of quasi-police officer and where there's live cross-examination and everybody has an attorney. And a lot of those sort of quasi-criminal processes just really don't match up with how schools generally address student misconduct or how schools generally address staff misconduct. And I think another reason why there 
a lot of observers want to see that sort of quasi-criminal trial process grafted into school dis- disciplinary procedures when you're talking about sexual assault, is a real distrust of sexual assault complaints, a, a sense that, well, it's okay if schools only do it when it's a sexual assault complaint because those we, we, we really need some meaningful probing that we aren't as concerned about if a school's investigating, disciplining a student for a fist fight. And I think that that reflects just a deep and baseless mistrust of, of survivors' voices, and particularly women's and girls' voices when they speak out about sexual violence and assault. But it really perpetuates what is what the evidence does not support, a rape myth that this is a thing that people are especially likely to lie about. Um, the data shows that's just not true, but I think that assumption motivates a lot of the demands for um, a process in addressing sexual assault and sexual harassment complaints that is very different from how schools otherwise address student and faculty misconduct. Yeah, no, that's a very important point. I think it's worth pausing on it because I take it what you're saying is that even aside from claims of sexual harassment or assault, there are a wide variety of, of procedures for disciplining and sanctioning students for plagiarism, for example, for theft, uh, for making false statements on applications. All sorts of, of, of things may occur in which students are sanctioned in ways that have some of the same effects as sanctioning for sexual harassment. They may be unable to get admitted to other colleges or have that permanently on the record. And that so you view this not as unique, but within the context of student disciplinary proceedings and ask the question, why should there be different standards for this disciplinary proceeding uh, than there are for other disciplinary proceedings? That's essentially the that's essentially what you're saying. That's essentially what I'm saying, as long as the other disciplinary proceedings have some, you know, basic protections for a complainant, that there's a prompt and fair response. But, but the notion that in the context of sexual harassment or sexual assault, that what we need is a much uh, more probing and, frankly, complainant hostile inquiry into the facts where we don't feel the need for that same level of process and cross-examination and heightened standards of evidence if you're talking about, yes, uh, a student saying the other student stole something from me. I think there's a real question as to why this kind of complaint is being treated differently. And whether it is being treated differently because of the very gender stereotypes that Title IX is meant to overturn, the notion that uh, that women and girls are uniquely untrustworthy when they come forward about sexual assault or sexual harassment. Well, one of the interesting questions here is whether, I mean, we'll talk, we'll turn and shift more to what the divorce regulations require, but, you know, the same way we're having this discussion about what's the difference in how disciplinary proceedings should proceed, I think may very well lead to arguments by defend those defending students accused of, of other things in disciplinary proceedings for insisting that these same set of protections 
ought to be included in those proceedings as well, because they'll simply mirror the, the, the arguments you're making about why is this different, and they'll come in and say, well, if if uh, this, these protections are provided in sexual assault issues, why aren't they provided as well for claims of theft or plagiarism or anything else that students are disciplined for? And I think we very well may see this uh, to, to a continuing, what we can call continuing legalization in, in, in terms of procedures within the university. That's one of the things that I think may very well happen here. Uh, let, let's yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> no, please. No, I'm sorry. I, I, I've just wondered whether, it, I don't know if you've seen anything like that, but it seems to me that's inevitable that counsel defending a student accused of other things, whatever they are, is going to be mirroring your statement, uh, you know, and saying, look, these should not be treated differently. It's a question of discipline within the university. And so... Yeah. I should have the same, my client should have the same protections being expelled for plagiarism uh, in terms of, uh, you know, cross-examination and everything else uh, that are provided uh, for this particular, for other parts of disciplinary proceedings. And it'll be very interesting to see how that develops. I think that's right. And I think it's one reason why um, the reaction to the DeVos rules from institutions of higher education and K through 12 stakeholders have been by and large very negative, um, which, frankly, when I first saw that um, in response to the proposed rules, I was a little surprised about because one of the things that I thought when I first read the proposals is, wow, this is really trying to protect institutions from liability at the expense of students who've experienced harassment or assault. Um, but institutions recognize a point which I probably took a minute longer to recognize sitting in a different seat, which is there's a tremendous amount of legalization being imposed on um, how schools, regardless of the type of school, the size of school, the resources of the school, respond to these complaints in a way that is intensely uh, resource-demanding <laughs> Um, that is likely to spread beyond this one context if a school is not wanting to expose itself to other sorts of complaints about arbitrary or discriminatory treatment of treating some sets of complainants and respondents differently from other sets of complainants and respondents. And putting aside the reasons why a school might be concerned about the DeVos rules because of the ways in which it's damaging the school climate and climate safety and school safety, which is another thing institutions are certainly saying, they have a lot of self-interest in as they are seeing all of these uh, very legalistic trials that they are now supposed to put on and the ways in which that's likely to metastasize across different disciplinary proceedings for students and staff. No, I think that's a really, uh, you've spoken about it, it's a really important perspective, because I think everyone has in their mind an image of the university or the K-12 system they're talking about, you know, and if, you, if your image of this is either a great public university like the University of California, Virginia, Michigan, or an Ivy League school, your image is of a school, yes, it'll be an additional expense, but it's a question of process. On the other hand, most schools in the United States uh, do not have those resources 
and we've seen that in stories about the dangers to schools now in terms of, of, of what the lockdown uh, is providing. Many schools are on the margin financially and for, and some very good small schools are on the margin financially. And yeah. any added kind of burden like this, appropriate to use the word the legalization of process, uh, can make a huge difference uh, t- to the future of that school. And of course, in what you're saying in the context of sexual harassment, really have an impact on uh, how the willingness of the schools to uh, to go forward with the process. Uh, yeah. And and that's, again, that it's important to take these discussions in this way as we've done outside the particular focus and to realize the other ramifications as well. Um, let's talk specifically about the divorce regulations. I know um, uh, this has become a real flashpoint. This has moved way outside the legal system, uh, you know, without talking about the politics of it, it's just mentioning the fact that it's very rare that an administrative regulation by any department of the United States government is the subject of a major pronouncement by a presidential candidate that it will be his goal to repeal it the instant he's elected. So this has um, this has really reached into a different league in terms of the controversy over it. So let's talk about what they are. What do the divorce regulations impose uh, in terms of, of requirements for dealing with complaints about sexual harassment? Well, they do a lot of things, but some of the things that are most concerning. One is they really narrow what is considered sexual harassment under Title IX, and even worse, instructs schools that if a complaint doesn't meet that narrowed standard that the school can't, must dismiss that complaint, can't proceed, can't address harassment that falls below this new, um, this new yardstick. Uh, so in concrete terms, it says that, um, a school has to dismiss, can't address complaints of sexual harassment that occur outside of a school's program or activity. Um, In real terms, that means most off-campus harassment, harassment that that occurs, you know, out of classroom time, not on an official trip, that a school would say if you came and said, uh, my teacher assaulted me last night after school, uh, off school grounds, that the response would be, well, you, that, that doesn't meet the standard, that maybe we can provide you some supportive measures in terms of, uh, helping you get counseling or something, but we can't take any disciplinary action because that occurred outside of a school program or activity, which is incredibly disturbing. Um, it also says. Can I ask you, I'm pardon, pardon me interrupting. Yeah, I just have a, a normal, to ask hypothetical questions about that. In terms, suppose we were talking about using your example, a teacher with a student off campus uh, gets drunk uh, and assaults the student, not sexually, just physically hits the student. Suppose there's no sexual implications involved. Uh, and that happens off campus. Is that something that within disciplinary codes, there are regulations that prohibit the school from considering and imposing any discipline on the person 
who, who committed the act? Sir, I would be shocked if that was a general provision in schools' codes that as long as it happens off school grounds and outside of school hours, there's nothing we can do about it. In fact, you know, schools often address both student and staff behavior that has an impact um, on, that has an impact on the school climate, whether or not that behavior occurs on campus and during school hours. Yeah, that's it is not uncommon for schools to take disciplinary or other responses in that circumstance. No, that's why I asked the question, because again, it goes back to your point in yeah. terms of clarifying it on how this is being, this is being handled differently uh, than other complaints involving student discipline by excluding the off-campus activities. Uh, and so that's one, excluding the off-campus activities. Does it narrow the definition in any other way? Yes, it also says that um, if harassment isn't isn't quid pro quo harassment, isn't, in essence, a a faculty member saying uh, something like, if you sleep with me, I'll give you an A, and if it isn't uh, sexual assault or some other um, sort of criminal behavior like stalking or domestic violence, that in order for a school to take action in response to a complaint of harassment, the sexual harassment has to be severe and pervasive and objectively offensive. Um, in contrast, under Title VII, the law that addresses workplace sexual harassment, the question is whether harassment is severe or pervasive, or and are important words in the law. So in essence... The rule that has been set out means that for in order for schools to be allowed to address harassment, the harassment has to be worse than an employee would be expected to endure in a workplace setting. What does persuade? Um, what does uh, uh, what does persistent, severe, and and it was what else besides the severe and persistent? Uh, severe. And pervasive, pervasive and objectively and offensive. What does pervasive mean when you're talking about a single act of harassment? What, what What is required then for it to be pervasive if it involves simply a single extreme act of harassment? It means that if it is, it falls short of sexual assault, that generally a single act won't constitute sexual harassment under the standard, no matter how severe it is. Um, that, again, is different from what we say in the workplace. It seems to me that we should be at least as protective of children as we are of employees, um, but this rule says otherwise. I will say that while the Title IX rule says schools must dismiss complaints that don't meet the standard, it has a confusing thing that it goes on to say, which is, of course, Schools can still address behavior under other parts of their uh, codes of conduct that violate the codes of conduct, whether or not they constitute sexual harassment. I don't know, and I've talked to institutions, and they don't know either, how a school really can do that, since, as we'll talk about in a minute, I'm sure, the rules also provide a lot of procedural requirements for addressing sexual harassment that don't apply elsewhere and that, in general, are protective of respondents. 
certainly if I were a school, I would not feel comfortable saying, well, your complaint of harassment doesn't meet the standard in the reg, but I'm going to discipline the harasser anyway because it violates this part of our code of conduct saying everyone should treat each other respectfully and shouldn't bully each other or whatever it is. Because then a respondent is certainly going to sue me, the institution, saying, what about my procedural rights, which you violated, um, because you disciplined me for this harassment, which is sexual harassment that's not serious enough under the reg for a school to respond to, and you didn't give me any of the procedural protections the regulation requires. Schools are really left in a very unclear situation by this sort of hand-waving the department has done to say, this is what Title IX sexual harassment means. Of course, enforce your codes of conduct however you like, but sexual harassment complaints that don't meet the standard you must dismiss. But again, that goes to your point, and it keeps coming up in different contexts, which is if two students were together, let's even say on campus, and one simply started to physically assault another, no sexual implications at all simply started to hit the other, threw them to the ground, started beating them up. That's clear a violation of student conduct. There would be proceedings, there would be sanctions. But if something sexual is involved, suddenly there's less protection because there was a sexual element than there yeah. would have been if there were no sexual element. That exactly. Is, that, exactly. Is, that is the net effect of the regulations. That is the net effect of the regulations. And and if I were advising a student who had been sexually harassed and I wasn't sure that it was going to meet the standards in the reg because it happened off campus or maybe it was severe but it only happened one time so it wasn't severe and pervasive, I would have to ask myself, do we write this complaint to the to the school and just leave out all the parts that were sexual, leave out those epithets and keep in the other parts so that we don't so that we can stay out of this new complainant hostile sexual harassment. Yeah, just just call it call it a physical assault. Right. Uh, simply that. Aside from these limitations, of course, one of the things that has caused so much discussion are the procedural issues. We've referred to them as the legalization of the process. But the key procedural issue here among many but certainly whether or not the key central one that people and lawyers talk about is the ability of the complainant to be questioned uh, by a lawyer, uh, perhaps by the student, and that the ability of what's loosely called some kind of confrontation to test in a form of cross-examination, people say, is essential to procedural protection. And it seems to be that a lot of the discussion about what the process should be really centers on that discussion, doesn't it? It has definitely been a, yes, it has definitely been an important uh, part of the controversy, for sure. Um, it's interesting, so the DeVos rule requires that uh, that in any complaint of sexual harassment, including assault, not in other sex discrimination complaints, but sex harassment complaints only, um, that a school investigation has to provide an opportunity for cross-examination that's direct, it's oral, it's in real time, it can't be written questions, it has to be uh, courtroom-style cross-examination. 
that isn't required in K through 12 schools. And so it's, I'm glad it's not required in K through 12 schools. It would be completely inappropriate to uh, subject children to cross-examination in order to take any action in response to sexual harassment or assault that they've experienced. Um, But it does suggest that we must really, it does suggest that the department itself recognizes that you can have a fair process without this direct cross-examination requirement because K through 12 schools are permitted to create processes which the department uh, recognizes protect the due process rights of respondents that don't include live cross-examination. I want to go back to something that you said that I think, again, goes to this issue of differential treatment because sex is involved. In a straightforward claim simply of sex discrimination, uh, let's say that there was a student organization and students were involved, and the claim was made that leadership of that organization had engaged in sexual discrimination. These regulations do not apply to a straightforward claim Am I correct? Straightforward claim of sexual discrimination. So once again, once sex gets involved, the sexual claim gets involved, it is taken outside the normal other procedures. So if there's a claim of sexual discrimination, the various procedural differences uh, would not come into play. So essentially the net effect, looking at the comparative other complaints that could be made, is that because sexual harassment or assault is involved, it is treated differently. The complainant is treated differently than a complainant would be treated for sexual discrimination, uh, just as a complainant would be treated differently for a sheer physical assault. Or if a complainant was complaining of race discrimination or discrimination and harassment on the basis of disability. Um, racial harassment, these requirements don't apply. Disability harassment, these requirements don't apply, even though those forms of discrimination and harassment are also within the Department of Education's jurisdiction. But the department has been very clear. This is a rule that involves sexual harassment and sexual assault only. So we're really, what's so interesting about, one of the things that is really interesting conversation is that there is something going on here about the way both the legal system and the university disciplinary system responds when sexual activity is involved as opposed or differentiated from other kinds of very serious issues like uh, discrimination for race, sexual discrimination, that there's a cult. Is that an underlying basis, as you started out saying, is this a reaction of a cultural difference in the way the culture responds to the sexual issues than it responds to other issues that involve the same sort of procedures that that may be involved? I think it does reflect really deep-seated cultural bias against survivors of sexual assault. You know, I'm going to get the quote wrong, but Blackstone, some old common law guy (laughs) who said (laughs) that rape is a charge easily made um, and that it requires... uh, uh, some 
special uh, additional evidence and confirmation compared to other sorts of allegations. The sort of deep distrust of, I think, women in particular, though, of course, women are not the only people who are harmed by these stereotypes about uh, victims of sexual assault, but deep skepticism of women speaking out about these experiences. That that really informs these rules from top to bottom. And, you know, Department of Education officials, frankly, said as much during the drafting process. Candace Jackson, the former head of the department's Office of Civil Rights, who was in the role as, as, these, role, as these rules were being created, said that, uh, in her opinion, that 90% of uh, sexual harassment complaints involved students getting drunk and regretting having sex afterwards, women getting drunk and having sex that they regretted afterwards and then making a harassment or assault complaint. I I don't think you can get much clearer than that about the sort of fundamental disbelief of women's experiences that is motivating this sort of special set of rules. Oh, and I think you're right. I mean, that quote, the charge that's easily made, rape is a charge that's easily made, uh, to which the natural logical reaction, I think, would be what charge isn't easily made? Right. Uh, why is this different than any other claim against someone that can easily be made? Why is this suddenly treated differently? And why is it even stated that way? And that's that you've reached, I think, in saying this, what is the essential, you look to a core issue in terms of, of, of why this is developed the way it is, and, and what you're saying, and I think it has to be taken very seriously, is that cultural perspective is the core issue. Yeah, I, I, I think that is right. And I think that the other or another um, cultural impulse that really seems to be pretty explicitly motivating these rules is is an inclination to empathize with the student who is accused of harassment or assault versus the student who is making the accusation. These rules really center uh, the experience of the student who is named as the harasser rather than the complainant coming forward and is much more focused on what is the possible harm to the respondent um, from being identified as someone who has harassed or assaulted another person rather than focused on the harm to a student who experiences harassment or assault and doesn't feel able to come forward or doesn't have any, isn't able to access a meaningful response from her school to address the harm. That is an additional element here that is very important. This has been a wonderful discussion. I really want to thank you and thank Emily Martin. I think we have talked about this on on issues and levels that are ordinarily not part of the discussion, which does tend to focus uh, on on some other things. I, I just want to say to everyone who's listening that it's not just this podcast. Uh, if you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal, there has been a lot written within the Daily Journal, very practical, uh, very analytical. 
on this issues on, on, on this issue uh, among others. And that if you're a subscriber, you can easily search for those news stories and articles. Uh, you can bookmark and save them. They're a treasure trove. Uh, you can refer to them in the future once you bookmark them. So if you subscribe to the Daily Journal, uh, that is a, a significant asset that you have in terms of dealing with these issues. If you're not a subscriber and you wish to have access to that archive to that treasure trove to those writings you will see on the site on which you may be watching this dailyjournal.com the site itself this podcast is outside the the paywall and freely distributed but if you want access to the other material in daily journal you will see on dailyjournal.com a the blue button with a subscribe indication and by subscribing to the daily journal you will have access uh, to those resources and to that treasure as well. But it, beside that, it, I want to thank, thank you, Emily, so much for doing this. I think this has been enormously enlightening and, uh, I appreciate it. I know the, the uh, podcast listeners appreciate it. And we thank you very much for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Emily. <laughs>